Welcome to the sixth episode of ABC Insights. I'm Annie Swingin, Director for External Relations at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. And today I'm joined by our Vice President for Operations and Director of Defense and Technology Programs, Rich Harrison, who's going to talk with me about the significance of space. Hey, Rich. Hi. Thanks for uh, having me here with you today. Space has become the, uh, the bedrock of modern economic growth, uh, societal discourse, and military power projection. Uh, the recent SpaceX launch, which was, I think, May uh, 30th or so, that brought two American astronauts to the International Space Station, which is a really big deal. And it, and it demonstrated the potential capability and, per, and partnership between the U.S. government and the burgeoning American space private sector. And frankly, this development couldn't happen at a, at a more important time. You know, you asked me to, to discuss the significance of space, and if anyone that's watching this or listening to this, I, I want them to have one takeaway, and that's that China has a plan for space. And if the U.S. fails to counter it, we will be strategically disadvantaged. So China, they've begun, um, you know, executing on a, on a sweeping national space strategy, which could, it could severely impact both the U.S. Uh, economic and uh, military security. So basically, the premise of this is that America needs a plan to cement its position as the dominant space power uh, in order to counter that China space strategy. Last year, uh, I believe it was in April, my, uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Namrata Goswami, she did just an excellent job outlining why a strategy, a US strategy is necessary to counter the breadth and uh, of China's strategic ambitions in space. You know, she mentioned that the Chinese leaders, they have, they have a stated objective of becoming uh, the leading space power by 2045. And that, that's just, it's not something to take lightly. lightly. Um, China, both China's governing structure and their culture allow them to formulate and enact long-term plans, uh, sometimes in a way that the US really hasn't been able to over the years. And, and they've, already, they've already completed several steps toward achieving this uh, space strategy that they're working toward. You know, one is landing on the far side of the moon. You know, that's, it's complicated because that, there's no uh, direct communication out there. So they had to first launch a relay satellite just to accomplish the, the complicated maneuver. Um, they've also been successful uh, simulating a lunar biosphere with inhabitants uh, supported by a closed ecosystem for a period of a year. And, um, and, and observed mouse embryos growing in space. You know, that, that demonstrates that there's a, a likelihood of human reproduction in that domain as well. And, and she further, she, she also discussed the fact that, you know, they're developing techniques for asteroid mining, uh, creation of nuclear powered shuttles for space exploration, and, uh, and industrial, industrialization of the moon to, to fabricate satellites which can harness space energy. So at the end of the day, China's right though. They, the focus on space makes sense because space is it's still a largely untapped resource. Um, there's, there's now a consensus that the space economy is gonna grow rapidly over the, the coming decades. And I think today's space economy is around say $350 billion, give or take. But you know, major banks, and I'm talking about Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, they're all estimating that by 
2040, uh, we're looking at a, a value of over a trillion dollars. Um, and I know the U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates it to be even even higher than that. And that's also including Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and, and others. And these are these estimates are predicated on the U.S. establishing things like lunar mining, asteroid mining, space tourism. I remember there was a Wall Street Journal a couple months ago, and that that mentioned that they have um, uh, there's a an asteroid, for example, and just that one asteroid alone, if you were to extract material from it, it could be around seven trillion dollars. That's just one asteroid. And the the Wall Street Journal article goes on to make the point that you know all this is only going to be possible if uh, if if companies believe that when they go and and perform these these asteroid mining on the moon, whether it's the moon or, or, or wherever, or an asteroid, that there's going to be, um, they're gonna be able to keep the product that they spend all the resources to do it. So I think it's important to note that protecting investments and securing the space domain is, is essential. Um, you know, the US government and private sector, they're, they're the ones who can unlock the potential of space, but it's only gonna be possible if that environment is safe and secure. So, you know, there's there's an American national security. Um, we have a, a growing list of space big economic as, as, assets. Uh, there's a, a wide array of satellites that we've been launching, both for military purposes, for commercial purposes. Um, and these space-based systems, you know, they're they're under threat from naturally occurring phenomena like asteroids and comets, but also from potential adversaries like. Russia and China, who and you know those countries, they want to disrupt, uh, degrade, and destroy vital components of our emerging space architecture. So that's where the the space force, which I'm sure you've heard uh, a lot about, comes in. You know, our our newly minted space force. There's a lot of debate about their role, but one of the things they do they do need is a, a better defined set of objectives. And, and I'll go through some here. Um, one would be they're going to be needed to figure out what's what's their role in protecting the broader cis-lunar space economy. And I, by cis-lunar, I mean the area between the Earth and the Moon. Uh, and and what, what, uh, what capabilities are going to be required for them to do that? Then we need to think about how, how should Space Force uh, defend space lines of commerce, like on or, or near the Moon? And then finally, we need to identify key... Um, dual-use space infrastructure investments that, that could secure the U.S. primacy uh, in, in kind of an extended great power competition for, um, for industrial, uh, logistical, and positional advantage. So at the end of the day, what America is missing right now is, is a comprehensive national vision. We, we need a roadmap and an implementation plan with kind of a um, you know a multi-stakeholder approach uh, from I'm talking from the private sector, from the government, NASA, Department of Commerce, uh, all the private sector companies out there, SpaceX, Blue Origin, all these people, we all need to get on the same page to ensure that we have a future of economic, uh, societal, and military dominance in space for the U.S. So, with the hope of the uh, with hope the the successful SpaceX launch. Is just the beginning of a return to uh, American space primacy. Wow! Thanks, Rich. <laughs> Good rundown. Um, 
I have a couple questions for you. Uh, obviously, you talked a bit about China, and I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate how they plan to use space to uh, to their advantage or how to its advantage. I guess. Okay. Um, sure. So, so China China is utilizing space to achieve its great power ambitions. I'll give you solar energy as an, as an example. That's where the Chinese are making incremental progress on a potentially revolutionary technology. Uh, first, they plan to to experiment with tethered balloons for sunlight collection and, and transferring energy back to Earth via microwave as a proof of concept before switching to satellite collection of solar energy. And you know, in, in addition to the military objectives China is seeking in space, the peacetime strategy is equally impactful to the U.S. because if solar energy collection and transfer is successful, then China can position itself to be the top energy supplier on Earth with non-carbon producing energy. It's a really big deal. And then additionally, China's, they're already using space as a component of its Belt and Road Initiative or formerly OBOR infrastructure. For instance, through Baidu, the Chinese GPS equivalent, which is used for remote sensing and communications. And that's gonna be used as part of its partnership building diplomacy. Or China's Space Silk Road, which is deepening participants' reliance on China for space-based services. China will, will likely attempt to work on infrastructure, a mutual prosperity approach, similar to the Belt and Road Initiative in, in space-related markets. Uh, you know, China China's already articulated in the public domain that space-based commercial and industrial facilities are going to be accomplished by 2021 or space-based power generation by 2030 and lunar mining by 2030 and asteroid mining by 2032. And eventually, they're going to have advanced space transportation that's required to get to all these places and to meet all these objectives. And in the process of pursuing these, China could gain advantage in other areas such as artificial intelligence and cyber-related technologies as well. And these pursuits will have impacts upon China's overseas influence, their diplomacy, and alternative places for their C4ISR, or I guess I should spell that out, command, control, communications, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, all in support of China's military. I'll give you another example. China, it was China, not the US, that was the first country to develop quantum uh, encryption for satellite communications. So China's strategy and its effects on the US need to be viewed from a, a great power perspective. So that policymakers understand that in addition to the military angle, the economic role to which China aspires in space has the potential to be equally damaging for America. Right. Um, so let's pivot um, to the actual technology itself. Uh, we talked quite a bit, or you talked quite a bit about the economic potential of space, um, but I was wondering if we could maybe discuss the maturity of the technology. I, I have a hard time sort of grasping the space technology timeline um, on one hand, was 25 years from launching V2 rockets uh, in World War II to the Apollo 11 moon landing mission. Um, but then in the last 25 years, it's been far less impressive. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, good good question, Annie. You know, it, it's something we thought a lot about here. At, at first glance, it, it, it may appear as though the economic argument regarding space doesn't stand on solid ground. But in our view at AFPC, and uh, you know, I'm including myself, Peter Garrison, and several members of our team, the, the technical timeline for space, it's, it's not a fixed trend, it's, it's fluid, it's fluid. Uh, American private sector space firms have reduced launch costs. You know, they're, they're making the position of technologies in space more feasible and affordable than ever before. And meanwhile, you, know, you have new te technological breakthroughs that have, have, that have made activities like may, uh, mining asteroids achievable within the next decade. One example of progress is the, the clandestine US Air Force X-37B space plane which launched this past May, I think it was May 16th or so. And that was equipped with a device set to conduct a revolutionary 
power beaming experiments, similar to what I mentioned with the Chinese and the, the tethered balloons, where they're going to be testing the idea of using a solar array to connect, to collect sunlight and transmit it back to Earth power stations. Uh, so, you know, and, and to the Trump administration's credit, they released a recent executive order that emboldens American companies to pursue commercial ex exploration in space, like mining the moon for resources. But, you know, uh, the pace of the technology, it's going to continue to advance and it's going to be driven by politics, policy, and the seriousness with which we uh, seek to address great power competition in the domain. And the U.S., you know, we must structure the policy to ensure American industrial base is postured to meet or even surpass the People's Republic of China timelines. And I, as I mentioned similar before, the Beijing's timetable, you know, they, they expect lunar industrialization and asteroid recovery to begin in the mid-2030s. They expect to have tested on-orbit manufacture of megawatt-class weapons and energy beaming systems by 2030 and have completed transition to some fully reusable launch architecture and in-space nuclear shuttles by the 2040s. You know, and that, that's going to be culminating in commercial, industrial, military, and, and civil preeminence by 2049, just in time, by the way, for their 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China. And it's important to remember that Chinese space companies are tied to their government. So there will not be any hesitation on their part to invest in space, uh, given that it constitutes a national priority for the People's Republic of China. You know, it, it's therefore imperative to nurture investor confidence in the U.S. space market so that American companies believe that it's worth the risk to enrich, extract the riches in space. I guess my last question, then I'll let you go. Um, you talked a little bit about threats, and I was just wondering if we could maybe go into more detail about the threats posed to the U.S. space assets um, that Space Force will need to guard against. Okay, I'm glad you didn't ask me about the uh, the Netflix Space Force show because I, I still haven't seen that yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think uh, I think the the Congressional Research Service they they released recently released a report that kind of summarizes some of the the, the non adversarial threats pretty well. And you know they, they mentioned that you know it's been 60 years of space activity. So that's, there's a lot of things that we've launched, not just in the U.S. but people around the world have launched over time. So there's a lot of of satellites in, in uh, similar older regimes. And there's been some explosive events like the 2007 Chinese anti-satellite test, which have left large quantities of uncontrolled debris in, in these orbital, orbital lanes. And that includes tens of thousands of trackable items. I'm talking like softball size or bigger, and then many millions or, of smaller um, objects, and any of which could disable or destroy a satellite. You know, it, in, in space, it's important to remember that objects in the orbit are flying at incredibly fast speeds. So even very small pieces of space debris can be lethal to a satellite. And in addition to these threats posed by, you know, orbiting space junk or these world nation satellite destruction tests, hostile states are treating space as a warfighting domain and pursuing strategic military activities in space. And so the Space Force is going to have a lot of work cut out for them. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll step through some, some more kinetic energy uh, type threats, uh, in addition to the anti-satellite missile tests that I mentioned earlier, they were summarized pretty well in a recent Defense Intelligence Agency report. I'll kind of step through for you. One example is a, a cyberspace threat. And that's where you're looking at actors using offensive cyberspace capabilities to enable you know, a range of either reversible or non-reversible effects against space systems. So, for example, this could be some hacker that hacks into a ground station and tries to um, control a, a satellite remotely. Or you could have directed energy weapons. So, for example, Someone has a ground-based laser weapon that's used to you know, disrupt or degrade or damage satellites by targeting their sensor systems on board. Then you have electronic warfare that could be jamming or spoofing techniques. So as an example, someone could block a signal that's going up to a satellite 
or they could block a signal coming from a satellite to a ground station or, or to soldiers in a conflict zone. Or, or maybe maybe they would they would block a signal and spoof it by sending false information to the intended receiver of that signal. And then finally, you'd have orbital threats. And I'm, I'm referring to adversary satellites flying near our satellites. So these systems could include payloads such as uh, you know, kinetic kill vehicles or radio frequency jammers or lasers or chemical sprayers or high power microwave weapons or robotic arms. And, and some of these are, are dual use. So for example, under the robotic arms scenario, you, you could have that be something that used, it's used traditionally in peacetime to service or repair satellites or, or debris removal. But then in wartime for military purposes, it could literally uh, rendezvous with our satellite and reach out and break it or destroy it. So in, in order to compete successfully against this, this, these you know, strategic threat by China and you know, all, the, all the things that I've mentioned that could be proposed by other countries such as Russia, the United States in general and, and the Space Force in particular will need to, put, will be, will need to be put on the strategic offensive. Uh, the strategic threat posed by China in space is as yet grossly underappreciated. And so as a result, our nation might be said to be on the defensive, both strategically since it lacks a plan to occupy and develop positions of strategic value in space, and tactically because it's not yet even discussed offensive capabilities it might deploy to deny others an advantage. So at, at AFPC, I will be launching a new space initiative with my colleague, uh, Peter Gerritsen, and several other fellows, and a broader network of experts in the, in the very near future. And so we will endeavor to try and help provide guidance on these vital space policy considerations that we've discussed here today. So stay tuned for some interesting and hopefully impactful space content. Yeah, it'd be great to have both of you, um, maybe for our AFBC Insights, so you and Peter can go, go back and forth and outline the program a bit more. Um, Sounds like a great also, idea. I look forward to it. Yeah, and then I know you, you also do write about some of this in um, our Defense Tech Monitor, so I think if folks are interested, um, they can sign up, subscribe to get a monthly monitor. Um, are you going to watch the launch today? Uh, I I hope to, yeah, I hope, definitely hope to. And yeah, thanks for the plug. I'd love to have people subscribe to our Defense, Defense Technology Publications. Yeah, super. Well, thanks, Bren, and I will talk to you soon. All right, thanks for having me on, Andy. Take care. Yeah.